Hi, this is Steve from the Retroman blog, and welcome to this very special episode of Retrosonic Podcast. In this edition, we're pleased to be joined by Harley Feinstein, the original drummer with Sparks. Now, Harley drummed on the very first two albums, uh, Half Nelson, or the Sparks album, and A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing. And he was over in the UK for a one-off gig with uh, Crash 74. Now, in this episode, he'll talk a little bit about the various members of Crash 74 and how they got together, and also about his time with Sparks. You can check out more information on the gig at the 12 Bar Club with Crash 74 on www.retromanblog.com where there's some great Paul Slattery photographs and a review of the concert as well. So here he is, here's Harley in his own words. Hope you enjoy it. Harley, so I'm ready to ramble on and on and on at nauseum. All right, so the first question is, how did I, the original drummer from Sparks, meet Nikki Forbes, the drummer from the Revillos? It was around five or six years ago that I first, quote, met, unquote, Nikki, period. It was probably more like eight years ago. We had a band going in San Diego called Crash O'Malley, and we did a number of covers. One of the covers that we wanted to do was the song Rev Up by the Revillos. Back in the early 80s, I had first heard the song in the movie 16 Candles. That was that great John Hughes movie starring Molly Ringwald. And I just flipped out when I heard that song. I didn't know who it was by, of course, because they never give you that information when you're watching a movie. Later on, on the radio, on the famous show Rodney on the Rock, that's Rodney Bingenheimer's (coughs) radio show, sorry, he played it and identified it by the band The Revillos. So that's when I found out, this is again back in the early 80s, who did this song Rev Up, which was just an amazing song, I thought, just completely blew me away on how, how good it was. It, the kind of music I like is high energy, trashy, pop punk, I'd say. That's probably about my favorite kind of music. And that song had it all.
Well, anyway, so years go by, and then we have this band, Crash O'Malley, and we're looking to do some covers. And I suggested, well, how about this great song, Rev Up? So Michelle was the singer of that band. So she says, okay, great, let's do that song, but what are the lyrics? So we start searching through the internet to try to find the lyrics to the song Rev Up, and could not find them. Eventually, I found a website with a fan site dedicated to the band The Revillos, and I sent a message through the fan site. Eventually, somebody answered me, and that was, I believe, Nikki. So I asked them what the lyrics were. Well, first we introduced ourselves, and uh, I told him what a big fan I was of the band, the Rivellos, and what a big fan I was of him in particular as a drummer. What a great drummer I thought he was. And he uh, reciprocated the uh, compliments and commendations, and then he said that he didn't really know the lyrics, even though that was the song. He wasn't the singer. He was in the band, but he wasn't the singer. So... He asked Michelle to try to come up with her version of what she thought the lyrics to Rev Up were. And she sent it to him, and he looked them over and made a few comments, and they went back and forth, and eventually they agreed on what the lyrics to Rev Up were. So then, over the next few months, Nikki and I began to exchange uh, emails. We got to know each other better and realized we had a lot in common musically and personally as well. Both of us had been in bands that were somewhat successful while we were in those bands. Definitely the Revillos were more successful while Nikki was in the Revillos than Sparks were while I was in Sparks. And we both had de-emphasized music in our lives and went on and got, quote, real jobs, unquote. He doing uh, marketing and publicity for a corporation and me as a lawyer. We both were married to women named Michelle. So anyway, that's how I initially met Nikki. Then, uh, two years ago, Michelle and I took a trip to London on a holiday, on a vacation. And while we were there, we met up with Nikki, and he was very generous with his time with us. He took us around, showed us, took us he was a great tour guide, really great tour guide. Took us into uh, various parts of London that we would have never got to otherwise. Took us to Whitechapel, which is where my father was actually born. We tried to locate the house that he was born in and went to some great restaurants and Jack the Ripper's, the pubs that Jack the Ripper used to hang out in.
So the second question is, tell us a bit about Crash 74 and how the idea of forming the band came about. Some of the Sparks people were having a Sparks convention in Brighton, and Michelle and I took the train down to Brighton and had a really, really fun time there. There are a couple of YouTube videos posted of me sitting in with the Sparks sort of tribute band that they put together. It was sort of a tribute band because there were some people that knew how to play Sparks songs really well that were in the band but had never actually been in Sparks. That was a singer named David Alston and an ex the excellent guitar player Kev Hook. By the way, Kev Hook unfortunately just passed away a few weeks ago from a bout with cancer. But I say sort of a tribute band because there were also two original members of Sparks playing with this band. One was Hampton, Ian Hampton, and also former Sparks guitar player Trevor White. Anyway, they treated us very well in Brighton. We had a wonderful time. But back up to London on that trip two years ago, one of the things we did is we went to see Nikki's band, The Roadholders. They were playing in East London in a club called The Bridge House 2. And Nikki is the front man of The Roadholders. The Roadholders are a great band. As I mentioned, Nikki is the front man. He sings and plays rhythm guitar. And Stevie Savage plays lead guitar. Stevie, of course, is also the lead guitarist for Crash 74. So we've got a similar setup between the Road Holders and Crash 74. You've got Nikki on vocals playing rhythm and Stevie Savage playing lead guitar. The Road Holders bass player unfortunately passed away approximately a year ago. This I understand was a great loss to Nikki, Stevie and the band and they have not yet found a replacement for him. Interestingly, the original bass player of the Road Holders was Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. So then I realized that Nicky not only is a great drummer, but he's a great frontman as well. He had a great style, great stage persona, really did a good job as the lead singer of the Road Holders. So when I saw that, when we saw that, Michelle and I said, gee, maybe we could do something with Nicky sometime where he could be the front man along with Michelle sharing front person duties and I could play the drums. So we thought about that and put that in the back of our minds, kind of shelved it in our mental file cabinets. Then one year later, which was just this last summer, Nicky and his wife Michelle took a trip out to the San Diego area, to the West Coast, and stopped by our little beach town and we jammed. So that was uh, <coughs> Nicky again doing some singing and guitar playing and drumming and me doing some drumming and Michelle doing some vocals and Paul doing um, the bass playing, Paul Jensen and at that time our guitar player at that time Rob Dunn was playing guitar we had a great time, we really fit well together, it was really fun jamming over at our house so I set up a gig at a local nightclub called the Kraken which is a funky beach shack uh, in Cardiff by the sea and we played a little gig there and we had a wonderful time we really uh, really rocked it sounded great the people in the audience loved it and Nikki and Michelle had a great time it appeared talking to all the all, all the people there that 
really, you know, people, Americans are really suckers for British accents. And Nikki and Michelle are such charming people anyway that they just had a really good time at the Kraken. So then we all came back to our house and had many, many drinks and said, why don't we take a trip to England and do the same thing, put together a little band for the night and do it in England. And we all shook on it and said, next year in England, we will do this. So then over the next few months, we uh, started working on song selection. And Nikki kind of took the lead on that. The thinking was that Nikki had a better idea what would be pleasing to the ear of the British audience. So we let him choose the songs. Uh, with the exception of a couple of the older Spark songs, which I chose. That would have been Whippings and Apologies and No More Mr. Nice Guys. But all the rest of the songs were Nikki's choice. There we had it. We had a band composed of Nikki Forbes on vocals and rhythm guitar, Michelle on vocals, me on drums, Paul Jensen on bass, and Rob Dunn on guitar. So now we had a band. We had the people chosen for the band. And we had uh, an approximate time that we were going to do this gig, and that was going to be in the uh, early summer of 2013. And after a few months, we had a set list. So then, how to practice? So before I get to the subject of how we met the challenge of how to practice with a band in how, how could a band practice where the members are spread across two continents let me talk a little bit about the backgrounds of each of the musicians um nikki forbes we know all about michelle's early background was mostly in musical theater she performed in, uh, she liked Stephen Sondheim musicals. I know she performed in West Side Story as Anita. She also uh, was a very accomplished dancer in one or more of those musical, musical numbers. She worked with a choreographer named Michael Peters, who went on to become Michael Jackson's choreographer. In fact, he was the choreographer for Thriller. Then after that, Michelle went through a long period of not really being involved in in um, the performing arts until she and I started Crash O'Malley approximately 10 years ago. And that's what she's been involved in ever since. Uh, Paul, Paul Jensen. Paul Jensen is a highly sought-after bass player in the San Diego area. He's uh, He does everything. He does... I know he's in a, a hard-rocking metal band. He's in a country band. He's in a reggae-slash-dub band. And, of course, he's with us. So, Paul can do anything. My background... Uh, I think you pretty much know it. Uh, I was in the uh, I was in, in Sparks, and uh, I did do some work with the Electric Prunes. I was the drummer on some of the songs for the most recent released album, and then um, I've been doing this 
crash O'Malley band for the last 10 years with various people. So the final member of what was to be Crash 74 that I haven't really talked about much is Rob Dunn, who was the guitar player of this Crash O'Malley band, the band that had been together for several years. And Rob is a very good guitar player. He's also a good producer. And he is an excellent songwriter. However, the whole idea of disciplining ourselves to learn a number of songs that someone else had chosen, and some of which we had never heard before, didn't really appeal to Rob. So he gave it a shot and practiced with us in, San, in uh, Encinitas for probably maybe two months, but it was clear that this just wasn't for Rob. Rob was not into it, didn't like it, wasn't happy doing it, so he bowed out of the project. At that point, um, Stevie became the guitar player. Now, Stevie had been originally suggested by Nikki when this whole concept first turned up, when, when we first developed the concept of having this Crash 74 gig. Uh, Nikki had said, well, let's use Stevie, because Stevie is the guitar player that Nikki is most accustomed to working with. Stevie's the guitar player for the Road Holders, and he uh, was the original guitar player for Alien Sex Fiends and worked with Daniel Dax and other projects as well. So now, how do we practice? Uh, we've got Stevie and Nikki on one side of the Atlantic, and we've got Paul, Michelle, and me on our side of the Atlantic, on the United States side. So we got the songs, and we pulled them apart, dissected them, diagrammed them out, and learned them one by one. Some of them we had never heard before, so we had to learn these songs without a guitar player and without Nikki doing his vocal part. So we did it. We got together at uh, our house once a week, twice a week, and learned all these songs. And we really did our homework. It was a lot of work. Stevie and Nikki were doing the same thing over on their side for their parts. We didn't do very much of this, but at some point, uh, Stevie had made some sound recordings of his guitar part, uh, emailed them over and we played along with those. We did, th we did that on this town big enough for the both of us so that Michelle could synchronize her vocals in the beginning with Stevie's guitar intro. And that helped. Did we enjoy the show at the 12 bar? Yes, we did. The 12 bar is a great place to play. The fact that it's so small, that really concentrates the crowd so that uh, their energy is, you can just feel the energy in the room. If somebody cheers, you hear it. If somebody claps, you hear it. I would hate to play there to a negative audience because also the negative negativity would be equally concentrated. But this was a real positive group. Uh, they were just a, a great crowd of people really in, enjoyed the the audience there and then after playing uh, it was like 
a great party. It was like one of the best parties I've ever been to. People were so friendly, so nice. Uh, which has kind of been our entire experience. Uh, both of our trips to the UK in the last couple of years, the last few years have been like that. We feel so at home, Michelle and I feel so at home in the UK. We really get along with people here. Well, just really agrees with us for some reason. And that was even more so at the 12 bar. It's an all-around great experience. I, I love meeting the people in the other bands, the Priscillas. Uh, we really enjoyed getting to know them. Priscillas were particularly enjoyable. What a great show they put on. We had so much fun watching them. Great hard-rocking girls who not only are really great musicians and rock hard, but look good while they're at it. So I'd like to talk about the other two members of Craft 74, Lee Sullivan and Dexy D'Angelo. Lee Sullivan was brought into the picture probably six months ago by Nikki. Nikki and Lee are good friends. Lee is an accomplished illustrator and cartoonist. He does the work for the comic book for Doctor Who, which was very impressive because even though Doctor Who really is only a recent, the popularity of Doctor Who is only a recent phenomenon in the United States, we had begun to watch it and um, we were very impressed with Lee's work. Maybe a month or two after that, Dexy D'Angelo became involved. Uh, Dexy has been an internet friend of mine for a number of years. Dexy is a very fine musician. He's a top-notch studio player. Uh, he had some involvement with Dexy's Midnight Runners, played on some of their songs, and that particularly intrigued, intrigued me because I was a big fan of Dexy's Midnight Runners and Kevin Rollins and all those. Dexy's band, the Stone Foundation is really good. If you haven't heard them, you should really give them a listen. So somehow or another, in my uh, communications with Dexy, Dexy had expressed some interest in sitting in with us, and I had brought it up to him. I probably brought it up to him first, and he said, yeah, I thought he would want to do it. And uh, ultimately, he did it, and uh, it was really fun playing with the horn section. We really enjoyed that. It gave us, I thought... A whole other level of power and musicianship that we wouldn't have had without the horns. I thought it was a great addition. Uh, I wonder if anyone has ever played No More Mr. Nice Guys and Whippings and Apologies with the horn section. I doubt if that's ever happened before.
Roxy Music hit at that time, and it was such an explosion when that song, Virginia Plain, came out. Uh, I remember the first time I heard it, I was out on the dance floor in a club on King's Road called The Pheasantry, and the DJ played that song. would have been in 1972. And I stopped. I said, what was that? That was the, one of the most amazing songs I had ever heard. Crash 74, reform again, and do another gig. Michelle and I, as I mentioned, were very happy after the gig. We felt good. We had a great time uh, socializing with all the other folks, mostly musicians, at the 12 bar. Paul also looked like he was walking on a cloud afterwards, and, you know, says, why can't we do this all the time? Stevie, too, was ecstatic, as was Dexy and Lee. I haven't had a chance yet to really talk to Nikki about it, but uh, from what I can tell, Nikki was very pleased with the gig as well. So will we do it again? I say, why not? She was a wonder girl, So I put up uh, an advertisement in a local music store in Santa Monica called Ace Music. And uh, the little card that I had tacked to the bulletin board had been up there for a few months. And then one day, I, uh, my telephone starts ringing. I'm in, I was actually in the bathtub. I remember the phone rings. And back then, there were no answering machines. And I think we probably had one telephone in the house. This would have been in maybe 1970, probably since 1970. So the phone rings, and I go, oh, my God, am I going to answer this phone? I had been surfing all morning, so I was exhausted, and I was really happy to be soaking in this warm bathtub. But for some reason, I get up and run across the house and answer the phone, and there's a guy on the other end of the line with a high voice who, who of course, was, was Russell Mayle. 
So he proceeds to tell me about this band, Half Nelson, that he's in. And um, he's telling me that the band is actually in the process of recording an album. Now, at that time, recording an album was really um, unusual. Very few bands got to record albums. It meant that you it probably meant that you were assigned to a record recording contract, which was pretty unusual. Very few bands were fortunate, talented enough to get signed to a recording contract. So here was uh, this guy Russell telling me that he, he he his band is recording an album. So I was very impressed by that. It turned out that. I found out as the conversation progressed that they had not been signed to a recording contract, but there was an individual who was financing the cost of the production. That individual's name was Michael Burns, B-E-R-N-S, who was a a well-known figure on the L.A. music scene at that time. So, Russell, we're back to the telephone conversation. He's telling me about the album. And so I said, what are you doing about a drummer? And he says, well, we don't really have a drummer in the band. What we're doing is we're beating on boxes, frying pans, shaking cans with bolts and nuts in them and squeezing little squeaky things. And and that's how we do the percussion. I don't recall him mentioning, I think he must have mentioned because there were some songs that they did actually use a drummer on, uh, because I know, as we know, that, that album that they recorded, that was became the demo album with the white uh, label on it. That album did have some drumming on it. Um, a couple of the songs, I believe, uh, it was never really clear to me who played drums on what, but I know John Mendelson played on one or more songs. And this fellow, Mike Burns, who had financed the project, he also played on one or more songs. I know that John Mendelson played drums on Chili Farm Farney, and I'm pretty sure Michael Burns played drums on Jason's Bar and Grill. conversation, me dripping, standing there in the kitchen holding the phone, lasted a long time. I think I was on the, probably on the phone with Russell for maybe an hour, it seemed like. And he said, well, we'd like to, uh, you know, we were, I really like you, he said, and I liked him, and we, we just really hit it off on the telephone. 
uh, from a you know a very it was a very friendly conversation. So he said, "Well, I would like to meet you and uh, audition you." So I said, "Great." So nothing happened. I don't recall anything happening for a while, and then um, I probably got a call from Russell. Uh, this is again. This is probably 1970. I was in my first year of college at the time. I was probably let's see, 1970. I would have been 19, and uh, very little drumming experience. But I could, you know, I could play some. I had studied the drums in in school, in junior high school. I was in the orchestra for a little while. I could read a little bit of music. I knew how to hold the drumsticks, but you know, beyond that, I I sucked. <laughs> so. Russell calls me and says, uh, let's, uh, let's audition you. So they come over to my house. I was still living with my parents at the time in Los Angeles. And uh, they show up. Russell, Ron, and Earl. Earl Minky. And along with the group was Earl's wife, Elisa. And um, I think that was it. So they come over to my house and they bring their instruments. And... Uh, at the time, Russell was the bass player of, of Half Nelson. He was the singer and the bass player. Ron, of course, was the keyboard player. And Ron, contrary to the way he has been looking for the last, I don't know, 35 years, back then, in 1970, Ron was very healthy, very athletic looking. Uh, he had a big, round Afro hairdo. A, I guess I wouldn't call it a handlebar mustache. It wasn't waxed, but it was a nice, healthy, drooping mustache. And he was wearing, like a, I don't know, some sort of athletic, like a tank top or something athletic on top. And he was muscular and, um, you know, kind of a macho guy. <laughs> and, um, and they brought a reel-to-reel tape recorder with them. So they uh, put on the reel-to-reel tape recorder, and they played me some some tapes that they had made at home. And I remember the tapes that they had played. One of them was, uh, they were basically the songs that ultimately made it onto that demo album, the album that became the demo album with the white label, the the very first one that came out that was independently financed by Mike Burns. They played me those songs that they had recorded at home. And I remember Jane Church was one of them. The only song that I can remember really liking was one called The Factory. And it was mostly instrumental. It was very psychedelic. It had a, it was based on a, a drum beat, which probably they didn't really play on the drums. I don't know what they use for percussion instruments, but it boom ba 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 That's how it sounded. With and it was swimming in echo kind of like a Phil Spector production with lots of ill-defined guitars floating around in and out. Anyway, I thought it was a very cool psychedelic sounding song.
And so I say, turn off the tape recording. Oh, wow, that rocks. You guys are great. Um, the rest of it, yeah, I didn't care for. But that one song I really liked. So then they said, well, let's hear you play. So we started playing together in my living room. Probably we played blues and surf, some surf licks, because Earl Mankey was into surf music. Uh, I wasn't really crazy about blues in those days. You know, blues is rather boring for drummers. But surf music, I loved surf music. That was my big thing at the time. Which, interestingly, I found out years later, after reading biographies of Keith Boone, that that was his big love, was surf music. So we played some surf music, and uh, then we started talking some more. And uh, we were all getting along great. As the conversation progressed, and they started telling me about their band, little by little, I realized that these guys, this band, Half Nelson, had a recently departed former member named Harold. Harold Zellman was his name. And Harold Zellman had played guitar with Rana Russ before Earl did. Well... This is getting complicated. I hope it's not getting too complicated. But he was one of my brother's best friends. So Harold and my big brother, Alan, they were very, very good friends. And I knew Harold also because he was always around the house. And he was, uh, I don't know, I think he was an architect at the time or studying to be an architect. So I had uh, heard stories from my brother that Harold had told my brother that he was involved with these guys who were actually recording an album. And how great was that? And so, so I was, when I heard the story from my brother, I thought, "Wow, that's so cool!" My brother knows somebody that knows somebody that's making an album. Here I meet the guys that I had heard about through my brother that are actually making the album, and it's Ron and Russ. So, so there's a connection right away. Uh, I go, "Wait a second, do you guys know Harold Zellman?" They go, "Harold Zellman, yes, we know Harold Zellman." And for some reason, that had a profound humorous reaction. Uh, with Ron and Russ. And uh, so that uh, went a long ways towards passing the audition, the fact that uh, I knew Harold Zellman. <laughs> and I could play the surf music okay, and we got along great. Then um, they told me, yeah, the name of the band is Hoff Nelson, but they weren't crazy about the name Half Nelson. And they were trying to think maybe they might want to change the name of the band to something else. So I said, how about the three-minute earwash? Well, I had heard that phrase, three-minute earwash, from my brother, who had heard it from Harold, who thought that was a really hilarious name that Ron had thought up. So I come up with this name, Three Minute Earwash, and Ron about had a heart attack. My God, how did you come up with that name? That's the same name that we came up with, which we thought was so hilarious. So I confessed. Well, I heard it from my brother who had heard it from Harold. And, but nevertheless, uh, there were so many, uh, so many connections that, between me and, and Ron and Russ that uh, I was in. So I was declared to be the drummer. My mother came out and brought out some punch and cookies, and uh, we all got along famously. Earl, I think, was a little hesitant. Earl, I believe Earl probably thought that maybe my musical chops were somewhat insufficient to be the drummer of the band. He never told me that, but I kind of always got that feeling. Um, but as far as Ron and Russ was concerned, I, we, hit, we got along famously, uh, and Earl and I became very good friends after that. Um, so I was in. So the next step was to go watch them record, because they were still recording this album. 